chapter 7, and we will be looking at the second half of this chapter for tonight in verses 15 to 29. So we continue our exposition of Ecclesiastes. Read along with me. I have seen everything during my days of vanity. There is a righteous man who perishes in his righteousness. And there is a wicked man who prolongs his life in his evil doing. Do not be excessively righteous and do not be overly wise. Why should you make yourself desolate? Do not be excessively wicked. And do not be a simple-minded fool. Why should you die before your time? It is good that you seize one thing and also not let go of the other. For the one who fears God comes forth with both of them. Wisdom strengthens a wise man more than ten men with power who are in a city. Indeed, there is not a righteous man on earth who continually does good and who never sins. Also, do not give your heart to all words which are spoken. So you will not hear your slave cursing you, for your heart also knows that you likewise have many times cursed others. I tested all this with wisdom, and I said, I will be wise, but it was far from me. What has been is far away and exceedingly deep. Who can find it? I turned my heart to know, to explore, and to seek wisdom and an explanation, and to know the wickedness of foolishness and the simple-minded folly of madness. And I found more bitter than death the woman whose heart is snares and nets, whose hands are chains. One who is good before God will escape from her, but the sinner will be captured by her. See, I have found this, says the preacher, adding one thing to another to find an explanation, which my soul still seeks but has not found. I have found one man out of a thousand, but I have not found a woman among all these. See, I have found only this. That God made men upright, but they have sought out many devices. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, as we look at your word, as we look at these words of Solomon, help us to understand what the lessons he has uh, sought to teach us. Help us to glean from his wisdom. Help us to apply these words to our lives and please guide us in this time in jesus name we pray amen back in 1994 there was a hit movie which was released that went on to become one of the most liked and most watched movies of our times and a movie which some of you probably seen, um, some of you probably seen it many times and know many of the uh, quotes and the scenes. It's a hit movie because it tells the story of a man's life who seems to have seen it all. He was a high school football star who went on to win the Heisman Trophy in college. He then became a war hero who earned the Medal of Honor. 
He had been through ups and downs in his life and um, the times in which he lived. He had seen both tumultuous and prosperous times throughout his life in, in the culture in which he lived. He was a successful businessman and a philanthropist. And yet he was the least likely person to achieve all of this. But there is a sense in which he had seen it all. And this is how Solomon begins this portion of this book. I've seen it everything during my days of vanity. And in this movie, the movie begins in such a way that uh, this man is sitting on a park bench and, and someone comes along and, and sits down next to him and listens to him tell his amazing life story. And tonight we're in a sense going to do the same thing, but not to hear the life story of one who has seen it all, but to hear the lessons he has learned from seeing it all, so to speak. So we're going to take a seat next to a man who greets us by saying, Hi, my name is Solomon, King Solomon. Would you like a chocolate? <laughs> <laughs> in this portion of Solomon's writings concerning his search for meaning in life the, and the purpose of life and the result of his observations, we see five main lessons we can learn. First, that life isn't fair. Life isn't fair. It's a, it's a, a gripping realization um, that... Um, most teenagers come to and will express to their parents time and time again that it just isn't fair. And we go on throughout our lives learning the same things and having to uh, come to grips with the fact that life isn't fair. Solomon says this in verse 15. He says, I have seen everything during my days of vanity. Seen it all. Is you know we we hear about those people which live colorful lives and, and uh, um, even from certain movies and stories he he starts off saying I've seen it all. There is a righteous man who perishes in his righteousness, and there is a wicked man who prolongs his life in his evil doing. There's a sense where life isn't fair. And let me tell you, I've seen it all, and, and I can tell you that life isn't fair. There, there's uh, the people who seem to do right, they're righteous, they're, they're good, uh, God-honoring people, God-fearing people, or, or just a moral, upright, good citizen who perishes. Uh, there was a song that I heard um, growing up on the... Uh, uh, on the radio, a classic rock song that says, only the good die young. And uh, hear it over and over again. And, and there is a sense that there's some truth to that. E even in church history, some of the most uh, devout, um, godly people die young. But from Solomon's perspective, he, he's talking about those who have external righteousness. And it seems that though as righteous as they are, it doesn't get them anywhere. He's in a sense saying that righteousness doesn't profit. It doesn't profit. It, but it doesn't profit in the, in the 
earthly, worldly sense. It does profit. It's good to be righteous. But it doesn't mean that we will live a good life or, or things will balance out in our favor. And second, that wickedness seems to bring prosperity. Wickedness brings prosperity. And, and we see that time and time again. Um, we see wicked people who uh, find the shortcuts in life. Um, you see this especially in uh, the organized crime, um, cartels, drug dealers, or uh, just um, sometimes just those immoral uh, celebrities, um, businessmen who are corrupt, uh, politicians who are corrupt, um, just people who are downright wicked and evil and manipulative, and they seem to prosper. This is, in a sense, what, uh, what uh, Asaph was, says in, uh, is, in, in a sense, going through in Psalm 73, wrestling with the fact that the, the righteous perish, perish and the wicked prosper. And, and what Solomon is kind of getting at, he's kind of dispelling um, this principle in the, in the ancient Near East. There was this, this principle called the retribution principle that you, in a sense, reap what you sow. And, and there, is, there is a general truth to that, but it's not always true. And, and this is, in a sense, what, what's happening throughout the book of Job. As Job's friends, they, they see his suffering and everything, all his calamities and everything that's happened to him. And time and time again, they come to him and they say true things, and, but they almost uh, kind of try to put the blame on him. Job, you must have done something wrong. But that wasn't the case. Here's righteous Job, and, and it seems from a earthly worldly perspective that his righteousness doesn't profit him and there's a sense that we all have a desire for everything to work out in our lives as well as uh, this concept of balance and fairness that God has, has placed his law upon our hearts that we do have a sense of justice and righteousness and morality uh, but God blesses and he afflicts according to his sovereign will and purposes you know, there was, um, growing up, and I, I heard this a lot in the 80s and 90s, there's um, these jokes um, <clears throat> you would call the dumb blonde jokes. And the premise it wasn't just a, a, a ditzy, um, blonde, beautiful person, but the premise was, was in a sense, this, that, um, you know, she's beautiful, so she must be dumb. It kind of, and you know, sometimes that was true, but that's not always true. That sometimes God blesses people with beauty, intelligence, prosperity. It, it seems as if they're living this this fairy tale life. I, I've seen this a couple times. Um, believers who have grown up in just uh, a good Christian home 
they became believers at a young age, and, and they're, they're good-looking, they're handsome, uh, they meet their high school sweetheart, they go on, it just seems like they're prosperous, it, their, their life is it, it's like a stroll through a flowery meadow on a sunny day. And then there's other people whose lives seem like a horror story. They grow up and, and they're just uh, abused physically, emotionally, verbally, sexually. They're oppressed. They, they may live in a country where there's no opportunities. Just a horrible government and, and, and wickedness all over. And, and there's a sense in which we see these things and we, we say, you know, there ought to be some sort of balance here. This ought to balance out somehow. But it only balances out in the end when, when God brings his judgment. And, and God is, is, he has a prerogative to pour out blessing on one person and to afflict another person. You know, um, you think of the flood. And uh, there's been theologians who, from a conservative estimate, would look at the genealogies and just from a birth rate and consider that by the time of the flood, before Noah entered the ark, there, conservatively speaking, was probably about 24 billion people on the planet. Given their span of life and their ability to, you know, you live 700 years and you're able to, you know, you're fertile all those years and you're able to have a lot of children multiply the, the you know, the birth rate was phenomenal. And God destroyed all of them and only saved eight. And as many unbelievers would say, that's not fair. Is who are you to say what is fair and what is not? We all deserve hell. We all deserve to be crushed, to be afflicted. There's many times that, you know, I, I was, as a hospice chaplain, it was probably the hardest job or ministry I've ever had, but also, in many ways, one of the most rewarding because there would be times where I would go into a facility to see a person either in their 40s, 50s, 60s, who their whole life have had some debilitating disease or, um, <clears throat> that has placed them in a wheelchair, quadriplegic, uh, an invalid, so to speak, uh, maybe mentally not all there, and, and just um, even deformed. And this is, in a sense, their lot in life. And to come face to face with that and say, have to be forced to say, but for the grace of God, there go I. Life isn't fair, from our perspective, at least. There's things aren't what they should be. Or as you know, I have said before to people, the ideal isn't real. The ideal isn't real. In one commentator, he writes uh, concerning this. He says, The preacher aims neither to abolish nor even to explain life's anomalies. 
but to enable one to live with them. To live with the fact that, that things don't always turn out the way we think they ought to. Which brings us to the second lesson Solomon aims to teach us. He said, this first lesson, life isn't fair. The second, extremism will ruin your life. Extremism will ruin your life. Verses 16 to 18, he says, Do not be excessively righteous and do not be overly wise. Why should you make yourself desolate? Do not be excessively wicked and do not be a simple-minded fool. Why should you die before your time? It is good that you seize one thing and also not let go of the other. For the one who fears God comes forth with both of them. There is a sense that as we read these verses, on its face value, we're like, what is Solomon getting at? Do not be excessively righteous and do not be overly wise. Aren't those good things? I mean, don't you want as much righteousness as possible? Don't you want as much wisdom as possible? And do not be excessively wicked and do not be a simple-minded fool. We understand that, but is he, in a sense, saying that a little wickedness is okay? No, he's, he's in a sense, saying that extremism will ruin your life. The extremes of self-righteousness, of being... a wise in your own eyes, of adding laws and rules to uh, God's law, of being, in a sense, a perfectionist, uh, of trying to um, uh, set your own standard and achieve your own standard and, and compel other people to submit to your standards. This is um, the Pharisee. This is what he's talking about. That he's in a sense saying in verse 16 that self-righteousness severs relationships. Self-righteousness severs relationships. As he says, why should you make yourself desolate? This is what happens with the self-righteous person that adds laws to laws, the, the legalist that has such a high, unachievable standard that they, um, they burden other people's with, that they... In a sense, in doing so, they push people away. They sever relationships, and, and they become desolate themselves. No one wants to be their friend. No one wants to be close to them. These are the Pharisees of, of uh, uh, Jesus' day when, when he said, said you, you, <clears throat> you forsake God's law for the sake of your traditions. You know, there's... Uh, some uh, theologians who have uh, counted, tried to count up the, the Jewish laws and the statutes that they have added and um, kind of counted somewhere upwards of 600 or so laws and statutes and rules that they have added and, and, and things so much. So there, there's this concept of, um, <clears throat> I don't know if you, you've ever seen this, but in uh, uh, Jewish communities in, in Israel, there's this thing called a Sabbath elevator. And the point of the Sabbath elevator is because you're not supposed to do any work on the Sabbath. And so the Sabbath elevator is designed in such a way that you wouldn't have to push the button because it'll stop on every floor so that you don't have to work and break the law. 
This is the extent where their legalism, their self-righteousness has gotten them. But we could do the same in our own Christian lives. And not just our, our standards of righteousness, um, but even in our family life, our, our standards of cleanliness or order, or it just has to be a certain way. And we can burden people around us. And I get this because, you know, I love order. <laughs> I love order. I love things to be labeled and cleaned and organized. It's wonderful. It makes me feel good. But you can take that to an extreme. And you can harm other people, and especially if it's done in a religious sense. Self-righteousness severs relationships. But conversely, evil and foolishness destroys and we, we know that, we see that. He says, do not be excessively wicked and, and do not be a simple-minded fool. Why should you die before your time? And as I said, he's, he's not saying that a little bit of wickedness is okay. But he's, all, he's also implying that all of us are wicked already. We're already sinful. So... In a sense, we, we can't be completely sinless, but we shouldn't give in to sin. And we shouldn't give in to foolishness. Michael Eaton, in his commentary, he writes that, Faced with injustice, one tends to move to either self-righteousness, the point of verse 16, which could be translated, play the righteous person, or capitulation to sin. And this is, in a sense, what, what a perfectionist does. Oh, they, they either try, um, pursue self-righteousness, um, a standard, they, they, they raise this standard which um, many others cannot keep, and, and they themselves then realize that they can't keep their own standards. And so oftentimes a perfectionist or a self-righteous person will... Um, exacerbate themselves or frustrate themselves because they can't even keep the, the standard they set for themselves. So then they will just give up and capitulate to sin and say, well, I can't meet the standard anyways. I'm frustrated by it. So I might as well give in and I might as well have fun. And Solomon is in a sense saying, don't be an extremist. Don't be a self-righteous legalist nor a slothful worldling. Don't be a perfectionist and don't be a profligate. Because the third lesson here in, in this lesson that extremism will ruin your life is that balance benefits the God fear. And we, we, shouldn't, we, we should understand that self-righteousness severs relationships and evil and foolishness destroys, but balance benefits the God fear. Verse 18, it is good that you seize one thing and also not let go of the other. For the one who fears God comes forth with both of them. This is in a sense uh, what he was getting at um, with uh, overworking or laziness back in uh, Ecclesiastes chapter 4. When he says... <clears throat> He says, one hand full of rest is better than two fists full of labor and striving after wind. 
that, that we should have balance in our lives. We should find balance. We should find balance between rest and work. We should find balance in our standards. We should find balance in our relationships and how we relate to one another. We should find balance in our perspective on life, that, that things don't always work out the way that we think they should, that life isn't fair. And if we, we fall into extremism, it, it will, in a sense, ruin our life. It'll, it'll ruin our relationships. Solomon begins Ecclesiastes in chapter 1, verse 15. He says, what, what is bent cannot be straightened, and what is lacking cannot be counted. There's things in this world that don't make sense to us. But they make sense in the mind of God. One commentator, he writes this, he says, The limits of the retribution principle do not mean, however, that one is justified in being wicked and foolish. Retribution is still generally true, and foolish villains often do get their just deserts. So a person who fears God will reject both extremes. One should be godly and wise without becoming a cheerless, frustrated legalist. This way, life can be enjoyed without falling into sinful, destructive license. We should have balance. This is why Solomon writes uh, just before this, this uh, section in, in verses 13 and 14, See the work of God, for who is able to straighten what he has bent? In the day when there is good, be of good cheer. But in the day when there is evil, see, God has made the one as well as the other, so that man will not find out anything that will be after him. You know, we, we want to straighten what is bent. And what is bent often frustrates us. I remember um, one of my uh, first sergeants in the Marine Corps, he was... Um, me and one of my buddies were in trouble, and he, he um, had a talk with us. <laughs> and and uh, he was talking to us about pride, and he said, um, you know, uh, his mother told him this saying that if you can't bend, you'll break. And furthermore, if you won't flex, you'll be frustrated. Don't be so rigid, so... Um, determine that things have to be such the wise accepts the fact that they don't know everything and the fact that they are not in control and the fact that God's ways are higher than ours and also knows that fatalism is not the answer to the facts of life either but faithful obedience to God and a humble trust in his perfect providence which brings us to the third lesson Solomon wants to teach us wisdom helps in a fallen world Wisdom helps in a fallen world, verses 19 to 22. Wisdom strengthens a wise man more than ten men with power who are in a city. Indeed, there is not a righteous man on earth who continually does good and who never sins. Also, do not give your heart to all words which are spoken, so you will not hear your slave cursing you. For your heart also knows that you likewise have many times cursed others. Wisdom helps in a fallen world. He says in verse 19, Wisdom strengthens a wise man more than ten men with power who are in a city. Wisdom, in a sense, multiplies our ability. It, it multiplies our ability to do things, to, 
to, um, to live life um, with discernment, with skill, in a sense, um, to go through life skillfully. Um, there's a proverb that says, uh, you know, your law makes me, or perhaps it's Psalm 119, your law makes me wiser than all my teachers. You know, wisdom, the wisdom of God multiplies our abilities. It, it, as here, it strengthens a wise man more than 10 men with power who are in a city, uh, alluding to rulers, alluding to people, um, the elite, people in power, people in control, that a wise man is better off than those who have earthly power and control and, and ability and influence. It multiplies our ability, so to speak, to navigate through a fallen world. It doesn't mean that everything will go our way, but it helps us. Wisdom, second, gives perspective and contentment. It gives us perspective and contentment. As Solomon goes on, he says, Indeed, there is not a righteous man on earth who continually does good and who never sins. Also, do not give your heart to all words which are spoken, so that you will not hear your slave cursing you. For your heart also knows that you likewise have many times cursed others. This is, in a sense, that the application of wisdom, or the application of verse 19. And Solomon says, says, there's not a righteous man on earth who continually does good and who never sins. There, there's no one who is sinless. In this world, you're going to run into sinners because you yourself are a sinner as well. And having wisdom helps you to navigate going through uh, life in a sin-cursed world, interacting with other sinners. And, and here's the illustration he uses. That don't give your heart to all words which are spoken so that you will not hear your slave cursing you. For your heart also knows that you likewise have many times cursed others this is the application the point of application the illustration that wisdom gives us perspective and contentment it helps us in a fallen world because we know that there is criticism we ought to be wise enough to know that that not everybody is going to like us not everybody is going to say glowing words about us and so we shouldn't give credence to all the criticism we hear. We shouldn't um, want to hear everything. Uh, we, we shouldn't be upset when someone criticizes us. Or we, we shouldn't assume that, that everybody just says glowing words about us behind our backs. It's not true. And especially not true that, you know, one thing I, heard, uh, I learned... Um, just coming up through the ranks in the military or, or just leadership in general, reading leadership books. Every leader, every supervisor, everyone that's in some sort of leadership position is criticized by their subordinates or by the people around them at some point. The, the greatest of leaders I've heard criticized. Um, and, and the point is, is that you know, as a leader or as someone else in some position, or even a mother or a father, your, your, your kids are going to criticize you. They're going to say bad things about you. Just like you said about your parents when you were a kid. You know? Or, or just like you said about your boss when you were a subordinate. 
You know, I, I, I think of, you know, all the leaders in my life and, and even the pastors. I only think about one or two pastors that I didn't never said anything bad about or didn't have an evil thought about. You know, and so, you know, whether you verbalize it or not, you know, people curse you. You live in a sin-cursed world. It's going to happen. Don't listen to it. Don't, you know, and, and sometimes it is true. There's truth to it. But it's just, it's just one of the facts of living in a sin-cursed world. So don't take it to heart. You know, there's um, some stories or movies about this situation or this, um, thing, this um, concept of, you know, either it's magic or some um, device where you can um, hear what other people are saying or that, that you can know what other people are thinking and, and some people might see a movie like that or hear a story like that and say that, that, would, be, that would be interesting, that would be nice to know, to have that information. And it's, the fact is you don't want that information. You don't want to know what everybody else is thinking about you or saying about you. And wisdom helps you to navigate that fact that we live in a fallen world. We live in a sin-cursed world. And people aren't going to say nice things about us all the time. You know, Charles Spurgeon, and, and I, I'm paraphrasing this quote. I, I, don't, I forget the exact words, but he says, um, said something along the lines of, um, when someone criticizes you or said, says something evil about you, um, don't get offended at you because you are far worse than they know. <laughs> and that's true. One commentator, he writes this, he says, um, Solomon encouraged his readers to seek wisdom, but not to overestimate one's ability to be wise and righteous. Wisdom is powerful, more so than even political power. But it is not powerful enough to defeat human sinfulness, to create even one righteous man on earth who continually does good and who never sins. So it is important to act wisely in light of human sinfulness. For example, one should not be eager to hear what others say about him. Which brings us to our fourth lesson. Human wisdom is limited. Human wisdom is limited, verses 23 to 26. I tested all this with wisdom, and I said, I will be wise, but it was far from me. What has been is far away and exceedingly deep. Who can find it? I turned my heart to know, to explore, and to seek wisdom and an explanation, and to know the wickedness of foolishness and the simple-minded of folly of madness. And I found more bitter than death the woman whose heart is snares and nets, whose hands are chains. One who is good before God will escape from her, but the sinner will be captured by her. Human wisdom is limited. Human wisdom is limited because Solomon starts off this section in these, these four verses by saying, I tested all this with wisdom. And I said, I will be wise, but it was far from me. All these principles, all these concepts, these observations of life in a sin-cursed world, he, he tests all this with wisdom, and he finds out that it's far from him. And he finds out that complete wisdom and knowledge is unattainable. It's unattainable. 
You know, we, we are called to be wise, and he, he just, in a sense, um, commended wisdom in, in this lesson that wisdom helps in a fallen world. And now he says human wisdom is limited, though. Wisdom can be attained, and he even um, commends that and says that in, all throughout the book of Proverbs to get wisdom, to get understanding. But only God has complete wisdom. We, we read about this. There, there's this section in the book of Job. It's almost as if um, it, it's, it's, in a sense, almost like the eye of the storm, so to speak, in the book of Job. In, in Job chapter 28, it's, you know, all his friends and Job are trying to figure out what's going on and what's the point of it all and, and why is he suffering. And then there's this chapter 28, and it talks about wisdom and goes through that whole um, chapter about um, man's search for um, precious gems and, and uh, rocks and, and metals. Job 28, verse 3, Man puts an end to darkness, and to the farthest limit he searches out the rock in thick darkness and shadow of death. And he goes on about the extents to which man will um, go to search for precious metals and, and um, gems and, and jewels and, and things of value. In verse 12, he says, but where can wisdom be found? And where is the place of understanding? Verse 20, where then does wisdom come from? And where is the place of understanding? It's, it's only with God. It's only from God. It's only through God's revelation, through his word. Human wisdom is limited. And complete wisdom and knowledge is unattainable. Mankind cannot find a satisfactory explanation for why things are the way they are, apart from the fact that God has made it that way. His ways are higher than ours, and the secret things belong to the Lord. Deuteronomy 29.29, but the things revealed belong to us and to our, our children or our generation forever, that, that we should follow them. Human wisdom, second, cannot know the depth and deceit of sin. He's saying, I tested all this with wisdom, and I said, I will be wise, but it was far from me. What has been is far away and exceedingly deep. Who can find it? Verse 25, I turned my heart to know, to explore, and to seek wisdom and an explanation for, in a sense, why the righteous uh, perish and, and, and why the, the wicked prolong their lives, why things don't seem to be fair, why things are the way they are. And he said, it, it, it's been far away from me. It's exceedingly deep. Who can find it? And I found more bitter than death the woman whose heart is snares and nets, whose hands are chains. One who is good before God will escape from her, but the sinner will be captured by her. Human wisdom cannot know the depth and deceit of sin. So don't go there. This is in a sense, as Solomon was doing his, his search, and, and we've gone over this in, in um, chapter 2 and, and 3, that he's He's testing himself with wisdom to see if, you know, perhaps the fool has figured it out. Perhaps, um, you know, the, the drunkard or, or the, you know, um, the hedonist has figured it out. And Solomon is in a sense saying, don't go there. Don't go there. And he gives this, 
this uh, explanation or this another application, another illustration. And I found more bitter than death the woman whose heart is snares and nets, whose hands are chains. One who is good before God will escape from her, but the sinner will be captured by her. This is the extent of trying to figure out um, uh, sin, why, why the, the, the evil or the wicked prosper. You, you start to try to um, <clears throat> you know, contemplate uh, wickedness and, and, and evil people and sinners and, and, and why they are the way they are and, and don't be surprised that you're tempted by sin and you end up going down that path. He gives this illustration of a woman. A woman whose, whose heart is snares and nets, whose hands are chains. That she entraps a person. This is, um, as, as many um, commentators have wrestled with this, whether or not this is a, a specific woman, a real woman, or, or whether it's a metaphor. And most have landed on the fact that it's probably a metaphor, a metaphor of the woman folly. And, and we see this throughout um, the book of Proverbs as Solomon gives many warnings about the harlot. Or the, the strange woman, the foreign woman, the, the wicked woman, the woman folly. As, and he also contrasts this with, in, in Proverbs chapter 8, we have the um, wisdom is, is personified as a woman. And in Proverbs 31, um, the virtuous woman is contrasted with the woman folly. And so there's a sense that this is a metaphor of folly, of foolishness. And where foolishness and folly gets you, that it entraps you. But there's also a sense that this is autobiographical. Because this isn't just folly and sin. Um, but there is a real sense that, that Solomon, as we read about his life, that he really experienced this. As he multiplied wives and they drew his heart astray into idolatry. Actually setting up idols. They drew his heart away. He, he thought that, in a sense, he could be wise enough to go down that route and not be totally engrossed by it and totally um, ensnared by it. But, as he says here, I found more bitter than death the woman whose heart is snares and nets, whose hands are chains. One who is good before God will escape from her, but the sinner will be captured by her. It's almost in a sense that, that <clears throat> his wisdom wasn't able to, um, to help him escape. Even though he knew better, he still went down that way. I think of, you know, the armor of God when I think of this. And the, the, most specifically, the breastplate of righteousness. As, as the Apostle Paul gives us he lists the armor of God and how it's supposed to protect us from temptation and sin. There is a real sense that, that metaphorically speaking, the breastplate of righteousness, as we are righteous and live righteous lives, it in a sense protects us from going down that road. And Solomon tells us that human wisdom is limited. And then he goes on to his fifth and final lesson. Mankind is sinful. Mankind is sinful. 
Verse 27, see, I have found this, says the preacher, adding one thing to another to find an explanation which my soul still seeks but has not found. I have found one man out of a thousand, but I have not found a woman among all these. See, I have found only this, that God made men upright, but they have sought out many devices. Mankind is sinful. No one understands or seeks for God. No one understands or seeks for God. He's still trying to, as he says, it's almost like a math equation. He says, adding one thing to another to find an explanation. To find an explanation for why things are the way they are. Things don't add up, so to speak. And the conclusion is that mankind is sinful. No one understands or seeks for God. And there is a sense where many have wrestled with this. Uh, verse 28, I have found one man out of a thousand, but I have not found a woman among all these. And it's not, in a sense, alluding to Solomon being a chauvinist or, or that all women are wicked. But um, listen to what Dr. William Barrick in his commentary writes. He says this. He says, verse 27 returns to the explanation toward which in verse 25, toward which he has systematically worked. He still seeks it, in verse 28, because it has eluded his search. Among a thousand, Solomon has found one man, but not one woman. Remember the discussion above. Scripture characterizes Solomon's experience with women quantitatively, not qualitatively. Meaning, more in number and not quality or character. No wonder he could not find a wise woman. Those who dominated his life drew him into idolatry and a departure from God and his law. The writer interprets verse 28 with verse 29. Behold, I have found only this, that God made men upright, but they have sought out many devices. God is not to blame for the absence of wisdom. Mankind is. Saying out of all his searching, he, he can't find, you know, he, he only found one man a, a, among a thousand. He couldn't find any women because all the women that surrounded him were immoral. He, he tries to add it all up and make sense of it all. The, this retribution um, principle that you reap what you sow. And he's only found one man in which it makes sense, so to speak. His conclusion is that mankind is sinful, that no one understands or seeks for God. And in the end, that mankind has been corrupted. Verse 29, see, I have found only this, that God made men upright, but they have sought out many devices. In a sense, points back to the fall. Points us back to the fall to make sense of it all. To, to make sense of creation, we must, in a sense, go back to the creation account and understand that this is not the way it was intended to be. That God made man in his own likeness and image to be his representative upon earth, to live in relationship with him and communion with him, but men fell. Men fell into sin, and sin spread to all mankind, and, and not only to mankind, but it affected the creation as well. Thorns and thistles will grow up. By the sweat of your brow, you will eat your bread. And so nothing works right. Nothing works as, as it's supposed to. I mean, God has written his law upon our hearts in such a way that we intuitively understand that. 
that the world is broken. The world is broken. And, you know, in many um, apologists, people who try to defend the faith, or or many, um, in a sense, they, they... they learn about philosophy and, and worldviews and different worldviews, different religions. And there's cate- uh, characteristics and categories uh, um, to characterize every worldview. And one of those, um, they, they follow questions. One, one question is, uh, every worldview must explain why is there something rather than nothing. And every worldview must also explain what's wrong with the world. What's wrong with the world? Because we intuitively know that something is wrong. And this is in Solomon's search, as he's trying to figure out um, everything, he comes to the conclusion that God made men upright, but they have sought out many devices. That's the conclusion. And and as we began, uh, this is... You know, in verse 15, he says, I, I've seen everything during my days of vanity. This is lessons from one who has seen it all. He's seen it all. But in the end, he comes to a conclusion, because it doesn't work out, he comes to a conclusion that, really, only God has seen it all. Only God knows it all. And, and, and only God is in control of it all. And as Solomon concludes this chapter, but also as he concludes his book of Ecclesiastes, he comes to the conclusion that God will bring every act into judgment. That the conclusion, the answer is that we are to fear him and keep his commandments. God made men upright, but they have sought out many devices. We are broken. We are sin-cursed. Things don't work the way they are. And Only God can straighten what is bent. Only God can resolve this. Only God can make things right. There's a sense that this this concept of um, figuring out the way things work and and, and not only um, the effects of sin in the world, but um, just the the way of salvation, the way of redemption, that in our our mind, in our human minds... um, it doesn't necessarily work the way we, th- we think it ought to. That, that, that we, in a sense, follow that retribution principle that you reap what you sow. And, and as uh, many have said before, there's only really two religions in the world, the religion of human merit or human works and the religion of divine mercy or divine grace. And so all other religions seek to, in a sense, establish a set of rules or standards or characteristics or behaviors that you can in, in some way make yourself righteous or commend yourself to God or work your way to heaven. And even the gospel itself, in explaining it to unbelievers or even the depths of the gospel, explaining it to other believers, that there is a sense that it, it is beyond us. It, it's higher than us it, it, in, in a beautiful way. Paul, in his uh, letter to the Romans, his comprehensive, uh, his comprehensive statement or, or, or treatise on the gospel, 
as he goes from chapter 1 to chapter 12 and explaining the sinfulness of mankind and that all mankind is condemned, that no one is righteous, no, not one, no one seeks after God, all have fallen short of the glory of God and all are condemned, and yet God in his mercy and his kindness and his grace has sent forth his Son to, um, in a sense, be, um, be the sacrifice for us, be as 2 Corinthians 5.21 says, He made him who knew no sin to be sin on our behalf that we might become the righteousness of God in him. As Paul explains this glorious gospel, he gets to the end of Romans chapter 11 and he says, Oh, the depth of the riches and wisdom and knowledge of God. How unsearchable are his judgments and unfathomable his ways. For who has known the mind of the Lord, or who became his counselor, or who has first given to him that it might be repaid to him? For from him and through him and to him are all things. To him be glory forever. Amen. God has made men upright, but they have sought out many devices. And it's only God that can resolve this dilemma, that can fix mankind. You know, one psalm, which I love, and it, it kind of points us to um, all of God's attributes and his perfections. And it's a psalm of David, and as many psalms of David are, it, it seems as if David was at a low point in his life, and, and he not only um, needed to um, understand uh, where God was and what he was doing, but he needed to remind himself of who God is and his character's his, his character, his perfections, his attributes. And so in Psalm 139, um, David speaks about what God is like, that, that he, he knows him, that there's nowhere that, that David can go to escape from God. He, he, even before he speaks a word, God knows it. It's on, even before it comes on his tongue, God knows it altogether. There, there's... No place he can go, whether in the depths of hell or the heights of heaven, that God is not there. He knows all things, and this is, in a sense, a comforting fact to David. And at the end, he says, Search me, O God, and know my heart. Try me, and know my anxious thoughts. And see if there be any hurtful way in me, and lead me in the everlasting way. As we consider these lessons that uh, Solomon tries to teach us, that, that ought to be our prayer. That we need to live balanced lives. And we need to fear God and keep his commandments. To examine ourselves, to be sure we're in the faith, and to um, ask God to search us, to know us, to try us, to know our anxious thoughts and see if there be any hurtful way in us and to lead us in the everlasting way because only he can straighten what has been bent only he can resolve this dilemma with sinful man in a sin cursed world heavenly father we have so many opinions and thoughts concerning this world and our lives and the way things ought to be and even as believers even as those who are well-versed in your word, we, we still uh, fall prey to the fact that uh, we feel that life isn't fair at times. 
that things shouldn't be this way or things ought to be better and, and we complain and we grumble. And truth is, uh, we ought to be surprised that things aren't worse than they really are because we deserve far, far worse. So help us to discern the things in this world and the circumstances of our own lives. Please give us wisdom that we may apply it to our lives and walk wisely, to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which we have been called, and to glorify you in all that we think, say, and do. We thank you for your word. We thank you that you have not left us in the darkness, but have shown your light upon us. Help us to walk in the light. In Christ's name we pray. Amen.